Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. of the early church and today's topic is growth and motion growth and motion and I'm going to read the first five verses and similar to last week I suspect that we're not going to get very far today but irregardless let's read now Saul verse 1 Acts chapter 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Now, as we said last week, we are in the second section of the book of Acts. In the first section, that is chapter 1 through to chapter 7, we saw the church growing numerically. But in chapter 8... Chapter 8 begins to look at and highlight the spread of the gospel, obviously at least up to this point. And we see as perfectly predicted by the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news spread from Jerusalem through to Judea, then out to Samaria. And we've seen the spotlight, the spotlight shift from the Jews onto the Gentiles. We see Stephen and Philip, who are Jews, but with Gentile names. We see them both probably speaking Hebrew, but as their sec- second language and probably Greek as their first. In chapter 6, we see them representing the church's leaders over the ministry of helps as deacons to the Hellenists, which are the Greek-speaking Jews. Evidently, the spotlight is shifting from the Jews to the Gentiles in unprecedented fashion. Spreading as if by wildfire out from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria. Now... That was then. How about now? Well, the mandate still stands. Because the commission wasn't to stop in Samaria, was it? As much as there was progress, it wasn't to stop in Samaria. And it was Judea, Samaria, to where? To the utmost, thank you, parts of the world or the earth. And 2,000 years later, with regard to his disciples, 
who hopefully we are, this commission has not yet been fully realized. And the Lord Jesus still has a purpose for those that meet the criteria, and it's twofold. One, those that love him, and two, those that are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. We asked the question last week, do you qualify in that sense? Well, if you do, what is it going to take for you to do all that you can to contribute to fulfilling Jesus' orders? Are we going to obey his instructions willingly? Or will we be forced to obey? Are we 21st century disciples expected to be like these first century disciples that is growing spiritually and moving possibly geographically for the sake of the gospel imagine as I remind you three and a half year old Christians leading churches back then deacons just deacons just those who who serve imagine deacons like Stephen and Philip who set an example that pastors today find it hard to follow let alone regular Christians growing spiritually and moving possibly growing and moving or growth and motion are these two things indicative of your life can you identify recognize or detect these two things in your life growth and motion see here we go we need to stop patting ourselves on the back just because we come to church once a week. We need to stop patting ourselves on the back just because we read our Bibles on a semi-regular basis. Now it's, it's good to come once a week and it's good to read your Bible, hopefully more than semi-regularly, but with regard to our calling as disciples, or should I say with regard to our calling as Christians, who are supposed to be disciples and even with regard to our calling as potential leaders I remember when I was sitting where you are from week to week hearing the word of God being challenged by the word of God ultimately I had to get to a point where I said Lord you know what as much as I don't feel able, and 10 years down the road, as much as I still don't feel able, I'm a Christian forevermore. I'm a disciple. And I recognize, Lord, that you've, you've, you've made me potentially to be a leader. On that basis, I felt compelled to respond, even though 
my list of negatives in terms of can't do's outweighed heavily the, 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 the other side of the list that pointed out my, my positives. And I suspect you're in that same place as well. You're like, oh Lord, I know you got, you haven't got a call on my life. Or there's something specific that you're leading me to do. So I'm saying just being here with a Bible is wonderful. But we have to come better than that. I mean, all we're doing, if that be the case, is turning up with an appreciation of things that need to be done. When we turn up and we have a Bible, right? It's like me turning up for work with a hammer, a drill, and a saw. And I'm there, I turned up. And I got my tools, as it were. And that's taking it for granted that I know how to use my tools. So you're here and you've got a Bible. Now, you're just ready to get started. That's why I say, hey, let's not pat ourselves on the back. Like we, like we achieved a great deal. Now, relatively speaking, we've achieved a great deal because we're in the minority with regard to the majority who don't turn up, who don't have an appreciation for the Bible, right? I mean, in, <clears throat> in comparison to unbelievers, definitely, there has been growth and motion. And again, I think... That a part of the problem is that, you know what I'm saying, we, we compare ourselves to the world and on that basis we feel accomplished. You know what I'm saying? And that's not to say that there hasn't been growth and motion. But in, in regard to, not the world, but in regard to the Great Commission. Well... Yes, you've grown in terms of salvation and more specifically regeneration, but are you growing? Are you moving? You've been changed, but are you developing? You've been justified, but are you continually being sanctified? And my point is, you can bet your bottom dollar that... <clears throat> If you're not willing to move from where you are, across the high street, across the postcodes, across even a borough, for fellowship, which is personal growth, right? If you're not willing to make, you know what? Can't be bothered, y'all, man. If you're not willing to do that for your own personal growth, then you're not going to be in a place where you will travel or even move in order to serve others. I mean, the amount that you can love others is directly linked to how you love yourself. And the thing is, what we tend to do is, again, because of the culture, we feed on so much of that which isn't good for us. And on that basis, we then begin to desire things that we ought not to. See, and... And then when it comes to having an appetite for spiritual things, we ain't interested. So one, we don't see the, the need 
for our own personal benefit and our own personal growth. And if we don't see that, we definitely ain't going to see the need for someone else to be helped and benefited. You see what I'm saying? Now, I'm talking to everyone, so please don't get offended. Single men, I'm talking to, and single women without children. I'm also talking to married men and married women without children. I'm talking to married men and married women with children. And I'm also talking to single men and single women with children. Now, I would suggest that everyone in this room falls into one of these categories. That is, if you're an adult. Now, when I, now I, I initially started off by saying I'm talking to everyone. But I know I could say that and it go in one ear and come out the other. That's why I did it like this. So hopefully you would get to a point where you think, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, everyone is talking to them. But I did it like this in the hope that you would say, okay, that first category, mm, no, that's not me. The second category, no, that's not me. That, oh, he's talking to me. Now, single men and single women without children. You are the first category of people that need to feel the pinch with regard to this message. Because you ain't got no responsibilities apart from for yourself. Right? And uh, one of the sad things is, in a general sense, in the church, single people can sometimes be the most frustrated group. <laughs> for obvious reasons. Particularly if you've been single a long time. And sometimes that can be the one thing that begins to distract you. Takes your focus off of the things that are important. And like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, really and truly, you ought to be the heaviest group. You ought to be the ones setting pace. Because Paul says, if you're single and you're not married, hopefully without children, the culture that we live in is such that that's a hard thing to get away from, especially when you get saved later in life, right? But if you're, if you're in a place where you ain't got no kids, Paul says, yo, you're blessed. You're able to give yourself to the commission in whatever way that might mean. The second category is married people. Married men, first of all. And married women. Now, it's not that one is more important than the other, but you know the order. It's like saying God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Just because we say Jesus after the Father don't mean that Jesus is any lesser. But there's an order, 1 Corinthians 11. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of the man, and man is the head of the woman. It's just, about, it's just an order thing. And I need to talk to the man them first. Now, most of the guys have listened to a message that we've been talking about and harping on for the past six weeks or so called Marriage and Men by Mark Driscoll. If you haven't heard it, I encourage you to listen to it, fellas, because it speaks directly to us with regard to one issue, one issue that most men, if not all men, struggle with. And what is that thing? Responsibility. 
And it sets, up, it sets up Jesus as the classic example of a man. Why? Because he, unlike we, that is most men, he looked at a situation and said, you know what, there's a problem over there. And those that are over there are not dealing with the, 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 they don't have the ability even to deal with the problem and it's sin. So he comes and he takes the sins of others upon himself. And what's he doing? He's taking responsibility. Not even for, not even for, for himself in that sense, but for others. That is the hallmark of a real man. A man who's willing to take responsibility. I mean, that's, there's a whole message just in that, right? We ain't got time to go into. But, fellas, married men and then married women who also have a role which is vital and important. And first of all, it's not to go and start your ministry. That is outside. Your first ministry, if you're married, is to your husband. You're called to be a help meet. Now, later on in life, you may get to the point where you can, you can function in ministry. Because as much as we believe that leadership is male-oriented here at South London, we believe that women have a place in ministry. But it's not to teach or have oversight of the flock in a general sense. Women, it says in Titus, can teach, but women can teach women. The older women teach the younger women. The more mature women teach the less mature women. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, me and my wife now are getting to the place where she is beginning to have opportunity to do exactly that. But our kids are big. There was a time when they were little and her first and most important role and responsibility and ministry was to the children in the home and to the home as a manager, a house manager, the text says. And then also to, to me, as a husband, to support me, to support my ministry. Now, that's the order, and we can talk about that further, and I suspect we will when we get onto elders and the qualifications of such. But married men and married women without children, there's so much you can do. But unlike the singles now, you're in a place where you want to go and you want to go to that fellowship meeting or that bible study or that prayer meeting and it's like drama why because your spouse and sometimes it's not the man sometimes sometimes it's not the woman it's the man causing the drama sit down in front of the telly come on we need to go to church or wake up <laughs> we need to go to church but it's not it's it's hard or should I say it's harder for the married couple than it is for the singles. But then we have another category, and it's married and it, it's, it's married people, but now with children, which adds another element, which adds another. And it's funny because when you have children, it's challenging. I mean, you only have to have them to know it. You don't know it if you ain't got them. I'm sorry. But you, you can't. You don't know. You don't understand. Yet, the responsibility of those who are married and with children is such that they need to get with the program. And then we've got the fourth category, which is probably the most difficult, I would suggest, in a general sense. 
which is single men with children or single mums with children. It's hard. A lie? Hard. I mean, it's hard when you're married with kids, let alone when you're on your own with two, with three children. It's hard. Now, I would suggest that everyone, as I said, in the room falls into one of these categories. And I know it's harder domestically for some than it is for others. That's why I highlight that. I know it's, I'm talking to everyone, but there's different levels, right? But what will we begin to see once we begin to understand the mandate? Now, I'm not going to be able to complete this this week. But the mandate, the Great Commission, the agenda, regardless of who you are and what category you fall into, the mandate is not going to change. It still remains the same. And the thing that we have to do is we have to work out how we are going to work this out. As a church, it's going to look different for those who are married compared to those who are single. It's going to look different for those who have kids compared to those that don't have kids. It's going to look different for those who are older versus those who are younger, but we have to work this out because the Great Commission is at stake. We have to work it out. And if we don't work it out, we collectively will either have our lampstand removed from its place, Revelation 3, and shrivel into non-existence as a disobedient church. And it happens all the time. People open the doors, they come in, they sing songs, they preach, they pray, they go home but completely ineffective. And it's descriptive of the lampstand being taken out of its place, just like the lampstand in the second compartment of the tabernacle where there's no windows. It's the only implement that provides light in that compartment. So when the light is removed, what are you walking around in? Groping around in the darkness, looking for... You're a blind man looking for a black cat in a dark room that isn't there. That's that, that's that type of church, and they're still functioning, quote-unquote, and there's a lot of steam, and there's, there's smoke coming out of the exhausts and the, and the, and the chimneys, but there's, no, there's nothing coming out at the other end. The production line's rolling, and there's people working, but there's nothing coming out on the end of the conveyor belt. See, and we will either be like that, or we will be forced to grow and move because of what? Persecution. And I really don't know which one is worse. And honestly, I personally, I should, yeah, honestly, I shouldn't, as a pastor, I shouldn't have to say honestly, but honestly, personally, I think that there is something scary looming on the horizon. And I think it's persecution. If it were, 
then persecution is an animal that takes no prisoners. Whether you're young or you're old, whether you're white or you're black, whether you're rich or poor, married or single, with or without kids, <clears throat> persecution takes no prisoners and it has no mercy. It don't care what your struggle is. It don't care what your excuses are. It doesn't care because it, it has no mercy. Persecution. Well, let's see if we can learn a lesson from history. As bad as it may sound, it really is all good. Now we read Acts chapter 8 verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his, that is Stephen's death, and it's the murder of the first Christian. Along with Saul's indirect contribution, which we looked at last week. And the verse goes on to say, at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Now, God wasn't the cause of the persecution, but he allowed it. Now, we need to hear that. He allowed it in 70 AD. He allowed it in the Dark Ages with the Spanish Inquisition. And, or because he allowed it in the past, he will allow it in the future. It's in the wrong place. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 11 says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, and you've got to remember, this is not past, and it's not present, but it's future. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It's a question they're asking. Now these have already been slain. And they're under the altar in heaven because the, the tabernacle on the earth is just a reflection of the heavenly tabernacle. And they're under the altar. Why? Because they've been thrown on the altar like a sacrifice and they've been burnt through the grate, typically speaking. And they're, they're the ashes under the altar, consumed now, crying out to God saying, wow, look what we went through. Lord, surely this is going to come to an end soon. How much longer, Lord, before you judge those who did this? And it says, verse 11, then a white robe was given to each of them and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. And that's one of the reasons why I believe that Christians won't escape the tribulation, personally. We will escape God's wrath, but which comes a little later after the tribulation, God's wrath. And what we need to do is we must identify that apart from the wrath of the devil. God's wrath, we're not going to be here for. Because God will not judge the righteous with the wicked. But what we see when we see tribulation and persecution is not God's wrath. Whose wrath is that? 
It's the devil's... Persecution or tribulation isn't directly from God. We know that fundamentally it's as a result of sin. But how do we see it coming? We see it coming by men inspired by the devil. And we develop, we're going to develop this in, in the coming weeks. On January the 8th, 1956, in Ecuador, five young missionaries were murdered by a primitive tribe of Indians called Orcas. Elizabeth Elliot, who wrote the book Through Gates of Splendor, <clears throat> in this particular book, she describes what happens to these five men, one of, her being, one of them being her husband. And she says in the book, to the world at large, the martyrdom of these five men seemed like a sad waste of five young lives. But as we saw last week, God has an agenda. And we see horrible and terrible things like that happen. And it's not God that does it, but God allows it. There were those who would look at that and say, what tragic waste. God, how could you allow that to happen? But watch. Just a few of those whose lives at a distance were changed by this despicable act of barbarism. In Brazil, a group of Indians at a mission station called Moto Grossa, upon hearing the news, dropped to their knees and cried out to God for forgiveness for their own lack of concern for fellow Indians who did not know Jesus Christ. From Rome, an American official wrote to one of the widows and said, I knew your husband, and he was to me the ideal of what a Christian ought to be. In the UK, a major in the Air Force with many flying hours immediately began to make plans to, make, to join the Missionary Aviation Fellowship. In Africa, a missionary said, our work will never be the same. We knew two of the men that died and their lives will mark ours forever. Off the coast of Italy, an American naval officer involved in an accident at sea as Check it. As he floated alone on a raft, he recalled Jim Elliot's words, which he had read, which said, when it comes time to die, make sure that all you have to do is die. When it comes time to die, make sure that all you have to do is die. Meaning, don't be in a place where you're about to lose your life and think, oh my goodness. What have I, apart from what I've done, what have I, and that's if it's positive. I mean, if it's been all negative, oh my goodness, you're really in trouble. But apart from all the good that you've done, how about the stuff that has not yet been done? Are you going to be able to say, hallelujah, amen, I'm ready to go home right now and be with the Lord? When it comes time to die, make sure that all you, all you have to do is die. If the Lord called you home today, would you be happy to leave? See, are we concerned with fulfilling our calling? Or have we become complacent? It makes me wonder if the, dis the disciples here, before the persecution struck, it makes me wonder if they hadn't become complacent. And the, dis the, the disciples and the apostles had possibly become guilty of doing what they had always done, which is not listen as carefully, which was not listen as carefully, to the words of Jesus as they should have. Remember, 
Jesus said to his disciples, you know what, guys? Three times I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die at the hands of the Gentiles. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Three times he said that to them. And when it happened, they didn't believe it. They couldn't understand. They wouldn't appreciate it. Even when the ladies came back with the good news and said he's alive, they never believed it. Why? Because it went in one ear and came out the other. And they'd become complacent. Jesus said that they were to preach in Jerusalem. Which they had been done with amazing effectiveness. They could have patted themselves on the back and said, hey, we're doing well. But the problem wasn't with what they were doing. What they were doing was good. You're here, you've got your Bible and you're here. It's good. But the problem wasn't what they were doing. It was, it was with what they were not doing. They didn't have a plan or tactics to fulfill the rest of the things that Jesus had said, which was to reach past Jerusalem. And you might say, well, Robert, that's conjecture. Well, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that they did have a global evangelistic strategy, which I don't think they did, because they were consumed with thousands of people getting saved, trying to minister to them, trying to share the gospel, trying to teach, trying to keep away from the authorities who wanted to capture them and put them in prison. They were, they were occupied. But in the midst of, look, this burden that they're carrying, the Lord is still saying, hey, that's wonderful, and it's great that you're doing that. But let's not stop here. You'd be like, but Lord, we're under pressure. We're feeling it. Lord, you don't know nothing about the crunch. Everyone is under it. But the Lord's like, so what? Does that mean then my agenda goes on the back burner? Does that mean that the mandate, you can take a break from the mandate? No, it doesn't mean that. And so what we need to appreciate is, okay, well, Lord, wow. You're obviously very, you're cognizant of the fact that we're under it. Pastor Ephraim was sharing with those of you that are struggling, maybe in a sense. That, that with those of us that are struggling, because who's on top of their game? And it might be physical stuff you're struggling with. It might be financial. It might be social. Things that you're, it might be personal. Stuff that you're struggling with. But, hey, may God help us, even if we're doing well in those areas. May God help us to see past our own circumstances with regard to the Great Commission. With regard to... The bigger picture. See, they may have had a plan. Well, you know what? Right? I have a plan. And it's to do this, that, and the other. But right now, I'm trying to deal with the burden. I am aiming to do this, that, and the third. But right now, and you know what? God understands. They may have been in a place where they were saying, yeah, definitely, we're going to do this and we're going to... But what good is a plan if it's not implemented? All the planning and preparation without execution is useless. 
And it seems as if we sometimes put too much emphasis on talking and not doing. Could we be guilty of doing the self-same thing that the disciples, the apostles did? And the thing is, we are reasonable people. Rationally, we understand that others need to hear the gospel. None of us in here would say, I'm not really sure that's, that that really is for today, the Great Commission, and sharing the gospel. No one in here is going to say that. We agree with it, but sometimes in... See, in conjunction with the wickedness of men and the purpose of God being fulfilled, we find ourselves sandwiched in the middle. Now let's have a look at this as we get ready to close, because I know it's hot and it's late. Let's have a look at this from another angle, right? A few of the storm clouds that we see undeniably gathering on the horizon are, one, global dictatorship. Again, something that we're going to develop. And two, another storm cloud, religious intolerance. Very often, both go hand in hand, i.e., the Roman Empire in the first century, or the Roman Catholic Empire in the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th century. And you're probably aware of the fact that we are now in and rapidly moving towards a coming reconstructed Roman Catholic, I should say Roman slash Catholic religious and political empire. We see this in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation. One, global dictatorship. But then secondly, religious intolerance. Let's conclude on two examples that reflect the need, apart from persecution, but we're going to see that this is going to lead to persecution, Two examples that reflect the need for us to respond to the great, not to that, not to what I'm about to show you even, ultimately, ultimately we need to respond to the commission, but I'm going to show you something that would hopefully cause us to get nervous. I remember I said to you last week that you're going to, I'm going to share some stuff that's terrifying. Okay. First example. The government says... We'll force gay youth workers on churches. The government says in its new equality bill, sorry, the government says its new equality bill will force churches to accept practicing homosexuals or transsexuals. Now, did you hear that? They will force practicing homosexuals or transsexuals in youth work in youth worker posts and other similar roles. Equality Minister, that's the lady at the bottom there, Maria Eagle said, religious believers should push gay rights in their communities. But if you don't, if they don't, I should say, in the meantime, the state will do it. The bill's explanatory notes make it clear that churches could not insist that a church youth worker or accountant be heterosexual. That's normal in biblical terms. The bill says nothing about the difference between an active homosexual and someone who has left the lifestyle. The Christian Institute, which is a Christian organization, is greatly concerned about this and other aspects of the bill. We are seeking legal advice 
on this particular proposal. In due course, the Christian Institute will contact supporters with information about how they can respond to the bill. The bill is huge, and the government may not have enough time to push it through Parliament, but a general election possibly next year. In the meantime, please pray about this important matter. Yours in Christ, Colin Hart, Director of the Christian Institute. Have a look at this. Edited highlights of the Christian Institute's Mike Judge, who's a believer, debating the issue on LBC radio with a well-known radio presenter with the, check it, the reverend. I mean, what is right and what is reverend about this person, I'm not sure. Sharon Ferguson, check it, chief executor, chief executive of the lesbian and gay Christian, quote unquote, movement. And also, she got, she, she's got qualifications, right? Pastor for the Metropolitan Community Churches. All right, guys, I like that sound. Listen to this. Religious groups will be forced to accept homosexual youth workers, secretaries and other staff, even if their faith holds same-sex relationships, are sinful. Now, Christian organisations fear the tightened legislation which is due to come into force next year will undermine the integrity of churches and dilute their moral messages. Their moral message. Religious leaders had hoped to lobby for exemptions to the Equality Bill, but Deputy Equalities Minister... We've got a Deputy Equality... What? OK. Deputy Equalities Minister Maria Eagle indicates it will cover all church employees. This, of course, comes at the time when one particular faith is embroiled in all sorts of problems. There is a gulf the size of the Atlantic, of course, between being homosexual, being in a, a same-sex relationship and the sort of activities that went on in those Catholic children's homes. I appreciate that, but it is obviously a cause of concern. Is it right that the churches are forced now to accept those people? Let's talk to a couple of people who have different views. First off, Mike Judge is head of the communications for the Christian Institute. Is it right, Mr Judge? No, I think it's wrong to try and force churches to change their beliefs. Um, I, I think that churches are accepting to, to homosexuals, um, but they do believe in sexual morality, particularly in behaviour. So, and, and there is a difference between a person and the behaviour they engage in. And Christians would want to say that certain types of sexual behaviour they hold to be wrong. Now, lots of people may disagree about whether that they're right or wrong to believe that, but they do believe it. Um, and it, it's because of the behaviour that churches would want to maintain that moral ethos by saying that people employed by churches ought to be people who support the teaching of the church. But I thought the church is all about love and forgiveness. The church is certainly about love and, and forgiveness and I'm a sinner and I've been forgiven of, of my many, many sins in Christ and I, and I rejoice in that as, as a Christian. But at the same time, uh, then I'm a, as a responsibility as a Christian to live in accordance with the teachings of Christ. Um, and for 2,000 years the teachings has been understood that the only right context for sex is between a man and a woman who have committed each other in marriage. And so that means that heterosexual sex outside of marriage and homosexual sex is both wrong and again people are free to disagree with me on that but it is the church's position and I don't think the government should be forcing the church to change its views on that goodness me so so hang on you're saying now then that uh, I'm so I'm a divorced bloke if I am in a relationship with a woman and neither of us are married but we're in a sexual relationship even I can't come and work for the church I, I think that should certainly be right yeah good lord please stay where you are I'm gonna get someone else into the conversation uh, Reverend Sharon Ferguson is Chief Executive of the Lesbian and Gay Christian Movement and Pastor for the Metropolitan Community Churches, joins me now. Um, 
Can I call you Sharon, or do you prefer a more... Yes, I can. No, please do call me Sharon. Sharon, um, only a man and woman should engage in sexual relationships, according to the Church. Do you agree? No, I don't. I mean, there was a number of things uh, that the gentleman just said that uh, I would want to question. Um, first of all, that, uh, you know, that this is the teaching of Jesus. No, it, it's not. It's the teaching of the Church. That uh, it's been this case for over 2,000 years. No, it's not been. If you actually read your, your Bible and actually uh, look at the sorts of relationships that were acceptable, uh, then you will see that uh, marriage uh, and sex within a relationship between one man and one woman um, is actually quite a, a new uh, thing within our society. Um, it is not something that has always been the, the norm. But it's against and the teachings, Sharon, we're hearing, no? Well, again, you know, th this is a very debatable thing, and what I would like to point out is I have yet to hear of any person who has been refused work uh, because they, they are divorced or because they are living with um, uh, the, an opposite-gender partner. And what you're actually having is that people who are living with, with same-sex partners are being discriminated against. And it isn't going to change the fact that what, of what the churches believe or their ethos. What we're talking about is that, you know, if you've got in a convent, you've got somebody who's working as the gardener. They do not need to follow um, or believe fully in, in what is being uh, is, is what is being upheld. But what about a youth work? What we are what we are talking about is the fact that you know we, we don't ask people um, on their job applications if they are divorced, if they are living. No. Okay, um, well let's put that. Don't go. We'll bring you back. And Mike Judge, it is a fair point. Why can't a bloke be a gardener who happens to be a homosexual or a lesbian? Well, it's about the ethos of an organisation. No, so it's about the gardening. It's about cutting the church. Oh, well, you know, this argument's used about faith schools. It's used about um, all sorts of religious organisations. Why does the person who answers the phone have to be a Christian? Why does the person who does the accounts have to be a Christian? And what we say is, if you're setting up a Christian organisation, including a church, it's important that everybody who works for that organisation shares and supports that ethos. And once you have people inside the organisation... Um, who don't support that ethos, then you undermine it. Uh, you know, the, what the government is essentially saying is that the top people at the church, you know, the leaders of the church, they can be uh, people who Do you suppose who everyone who works at McDonald's has to enjoy eating burgers, Mr Judge? No, but are you associating Precise. McDonald's Precise. with, you know, religion and church? No, oh, no, no, I've offended you. No, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm just using as... as I understand what you're saying, it. but what I'm saying is religion is far more fundamental to somebody's life it's than eating a It's a bit dictatorial, a isn't it? You can it's... only answer the phone, you can only cut the churchyard, you can only, I don't know, you can only hand out the books, hand out the hymn books, if you are a full believer and you're not, you're not gay. Well, look at it like is this. Is that right? Look at it like this. What about political parties? I mean, you know, what the government is saying to the church would be like me saying to the Labour Party, well, I can see why the Prime Minister and maybe the leading members of the Cabinet have to be Labour Party supporters, but I, I don't see why, you know, people underneath that structure um, should necessarily be supporters of the Labour Party. Um, and, and of course, surprise, surprise, the government's exempted political belief from this legislation. So the Labour Party does have a policy, and I've checked this, the Labour Party does have a policy of only employing card-carrying members of the Labour Party. Well, let's put that to Sharon, to Sharon Ferguson. Mike, thank you. It seems a little unfair that political parties can exempt themselves from these sort of requirements, Sharon? Uh, it, it does. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, everybody should be, be should be treated equally, and um, and that's and that's what we're being campaigning about. I mean, we had a conference on Saturday called Face Homophobia, Transphobia, and Human Rights, because there has been so much abuse around uh, exemptions when it comes to human rights and to equality legislation by the churches and faith organisations.
organizations and and if uh, you know it shouldn't make any difference who is running an organization they should be uh, subject to the same uh, equal you know equal opportunities the same legal uh, structures as everybody else is I will leave it there my thanks Mike Judge you heard from first head of communications for the Christian Institute then Reverend Sharon Ferguson who's chief executive of the lesbian and gay Christian movement Okay, I'm going to quickly move, that's kind of self-explanatory. Let me move on to the next one real quick. Now, this is a quick video. According to research, in order for a culture to maintain itself for more than 25 years, there must be a fertility rate of 2.11 children per family. With anything less, the culture will decline. Historically, no culture has ever reversed a 1.9 fertility rate. A rate of 1.3, impossible to reverse. Because it would take 80 to 100 years to correct itself. And there is no economic model that can sustain a culture during that time. In other words, if two sets of parents each have one child, there are half as many children as parents. If those children have one child, then there are one-fourth as many grandchildren as grandparents. If only a million babies are born in 2006, it's hard to have two million adults enter the workforce in 2026. As the population shrinks, so does the culture. As of 2007, the fertility rate in France was 1.8, England 1.6, Greece 1.3, Germany, 1.3. Italy, 1.2. Spain, 1.1. Across the entire European Union of 31 countries, the fertility is a mere 1.38. Historical research tells us these numbers are impossible to reverse. In a matter of years, Europe as we know it will cease to exist. Yet the population of Europe is not declining. Why? Immigration. Islamic immigration. Of all population growth in Europe since 1990, 90% has been Islamic immigration. France, 1.8 children per family. Muslims, 8.1. In southern France, traditionally one of the most populated church regions in the world, there are now more mosques than churches. 30% of children ages 20 and younger are Islamic. In the larger cities such as Nice, Marseille, and Paris, that number has grown to 45%. By 2027, one in five Frenchmen will be Muslim. In just 39 years, France will be an Islamic Republic. In the last 30 years, the Muslim population of Great Britain rose from 82,000 to 2.5 million, a 30-fold increase. There are over 1,000 mosques, many of them former churches. In the Netherlands, 50% of all newborns are Muslim. And in only 15 years, half of the population of the Netherlands will be Muslim. In Russia, there are over 23 million Muslims. That's one out of five Russians. 40% of the entire Russian army 
will be Islamic in just a few short years. Currently in Belgium, 25% of the population and 50% of all newborns are Muslim. The government of Belgium has stated one-third of all European children will be born to Muslim families by 2025, just 17 years away. The German government, the first to talk about this publicly, recently released a statement saying, the fall in the German population can no longer be stopped. Its downward spiral is no longer reversible. It will be a Muslim state by the year 2050. Muammar al-Qaddafi of Libya said, there are signs that Allah will grant victory to Islam in Europe without swords, without guns, without conquest. We don't need terrorists. We don't need homicide bombers. The 50 plus million Muslims in Europe will turn it into a Muslim continent within a few decades. There are currently 52 million Muslims in Europe. The German government said that number is expected to double in the next 20 years to 104 million. Closer to home, the numbers tell a similar story. Right now, Canada's fertility rate is 1.6, nearly a full point below what is required to sustain a culture. And Islam is now the fastest growing religion. Between 2001 and 2006, Canada's population increased by 1.6 million, 1.2 of those immigration. In the United States, the current fertility rate of American citizens is 1.6. With the influx of the Latino nations, the rate increases to 2.11, the bare minimum required to sustain a culture. In 1970, there were 100,000 Muslims in America. Today, there are over nine million. The world is changing. It's time to wake up. Three years ago, a meeting of 24 Islamic organizations was held in Chicago. The transcripts of that meeting showed in detail their plans to evangelize America through journalism, politics, education, and more. They said, we must prepare ourselves for the reality that in 30 years, there will be 50 million Muslims living in America. The world that we live in is not the world in which our children and grandchildren will live. The Catholic Church recently reported that Islam has just surpassed their membership numbers. Some studies show that at Islam's current rate of growth, in five to seven years, it will be the dominant religion of the world. As believers, we call upon you to join the effort to share the gospel message with the changing world. This is a call to action. Secular society has an agenda and they are forceful with it, running into churches with banners and kissing one another in the presence of Christians contending for the right to be gay. In the faith, like spitting in the face of not just the church, but spitting in God's face, running into churches and doing this. The secular society has an agenda. 
the Muslims, Islam. Do you know you can be a Muslim, a genuine Muslim, and lie as long as it promotes Islam? Did you know that? So a Muslim can tell you in your face whatever it is you want to hear. And according to their religion, as long as they are taking the cause forward, that's completely fine. Hopefully, you will see by that video that Islam has an agenda. Now, the question obviously that we have to ask is, do we have an agenda? And what are we going to do about our Matthew 28 agenda with regard to that which Jesus has given us and commissioned us to do? What are we going to do? And it's not because the gay right movement is doing its thing. And it's not just because Islam is doing its thing. Ultimately, it's because we're Christians who are supposed to be in a, walking in obedience to the King of Kings and the Lord who is Lord over all of this. But surely this causes us to some degree to have to say, whoa. I suggest the storm clouds are gathering. How will you respond? How will we respond? Wherever you're at, married, single, with kids, without kids, how are you, how are you going to respond to this? Jim Elliot, in his classic quote that was recorded in, in his journal, this is his journal, and it was, it's become a really famous quote. And he says, he is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now remember, Jim Elliot is one of those individuals who was slaughtered by the Orca Indians. He was a martyr. Stephen was a martyr, but Stephen's old school, long time. Jim Elliot, Jim Elliot was just 40, 50 years ago. Laid down his life. Went there knowing that his life was at risk. We struggle to make it to Bible study. Because we're not concerned, one, with our own personal growth. And we are definitely not concerned with the man across the street. And if we can't go to the man across the street, how are we ever going to make it across to Europe, to Africa, to the Caribbean, to Asia. Yet that's the commission. And if we don't respond to it, it was prayed earlier that his, that is God's strength, is made perfect in our weakness. And that God's voice would resonate through the land. That will happen as we find our voice and begin to speak on his behalf. Amen. Right, let's pray. Father, historically speaking, people, that's just normal people, are hard of hearing. 
Very often, Lord, as humans, we only hear what we want to hear or we only listen to stuff that we want to we wanna hear. Very often we hear the noise, but we're not familiar with what is actually being said. Tidy up your room. Ten minutes later, how come you haven't tidied up your room? I never heard you. Yeah, you did hear. You heard the sound of the voice, but you weren't listening. And Lord, we as humans are culprits for not listening. I say we, Lord. And I'm asking, Father, that you would help us. It's one thing not listening to the person sitting next to us and speaking to us. It's, it's one thing not listening to our children when they speak to us because we're occupied with the, the television. But it's another thing, us not listening to what you are saying to us through your word and by your spirit. We will smart for it. We will give an answer and response to all, Lord, that you've said to us. Yet, our desire is to do that with joy. So please, anoint our eyes with eye salve, Lord. Unstop, unplug our ears and help us to hear what you are saying to us by your spirit. Help the church to hear what you're saying by your spirit. Give us ears to hear. We pray, Lord, in order that we might respond not to secular humanism, not to Islam, but that we might respond to the voice of our master as Christians, as disciples of Jesus. And it's in his name I pray, Father, for us all. Amen.